Today's scripture reading is going to be from Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as one, by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The word of God for the people of God. Storehouse family, I hope that you are doing well. We are in week three of our Advent season, and it is my joy, my privilege, my honor to introduce our next guest preacher, who you know very well. His name is Alan Morales. Alan serves as one of our teachers here at Storehouse McAllen. He serves in kids ministry. He's one of our writers here at Storehouse McAllen. This guy does it all, and I'm really proud of him. I know you are very proud of him, and so I'm excited you are new to introduce you, Alan Morales. Appreciate that. Student section over there, thank you. Well, good afternoon. As Marco mentioned, my name is Alan, and we haven't met today. I was given the responsibility to bring us the word of God in the season of Advent. I know that you've already met some of the other guys in our, in our preaching lab, and there's still one more to preach, uh, but we're kind of making this a little group project, so hopefully we pass and you see us here in a couple of weeks when all of this is over. So please pray for us. Uh, today's message is going to be titled, The Son Who Is Our Obedience, and we're going to find ourselves in Romans chapter 5, verses um, 18 and 19 as our brother there read for us. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> well, you turn your Bibles or a scroll there if you haven't done so already. If this is your first time here at Storehouse, thank you so much for being here with us. It is an honor and privilege to be able to serve you and host you in this manner. Before you leave, though, do us a favor and fill out a Connect card. Those Connect cards could be uh, found there on the, on the benches. We would really love to get to know you better and, and take you out to breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Or perhaps you have questions about our church or simply need uh, a prayer or have prayer requests. We would really love to help you out with all of that. So please, by all means, fill one of those out before you leave and drop them off in the foyer over there in the Connect desk. And one of us will reach out to you as soon as possible. But... Thank you so much for being here with us today. And hopefully that, that gave you enough time uh, to get to Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. That's what will be there uh, for our time today. But if you've ever been involved in group collaboration, whether that be school, work, or sports, you know what it means for one individual to represent the whole group. And the clearest example I have of this is the presidency. Whenever the president goes out and speaks around the world, the president is not just representing himself, he is in a way representing us, the United States. He is in fact representing you and me. But I believe a more practical example would be parenting. Parents, how many times have you given out consequences to all of your children because of one? Or teachers, how many times have you had to give consequences to the whole class because of one? And this idea of representation is actually not new and is rooted in, in biblical times. This idea that one individual has an impact on the whole. And as a matter of fact, this is the issue that, that Paul is exactly going to be talking about today in our passage. If we look at Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, prior to that, and, and verses 12 to 17, Paul was talking about 
two representatives that represented two groups of people. And if you read those verses at a glance, one of those representatives is Adam and the other representative is Jesus. And within these verses, Paul was comparing these two individuals in various ways and we come to find out that these two people are completely different. Completely different. And then we get to verses 18 and 19. In verse 18, Paul is going to give a summary of what he had just been talking about, what I just mentioned, while in verse 19, Paul gives us an explanation or a clarification of his summary. And so we're going to find that verse 19 has a little bit more depth, answers a little more questions, and gives us a little bit more insight. And so it's almost as if in verse 18, Paul is saying, to conclude, and then in verse 19, he's saying what I mean by that is. And so we're going to go ahead and, and read those verses now. This is what Paul says. Therefore, verse 18, that's a summary transition. He's about to summarize. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's obedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so the way we're going to tackle this passage in our time today, we're going to have two simple points. Our first point is going to be Adam, and we'll see what verses 18 and 19 have to say about him. And then our second point will be Jesus, and we'll see what Paul has to say about Jesus in verses 18 and 19. But before we actually get started, I'd really like to give you my main idea uh, of our time today. And our main idea serves as a one-sentence summary of what our time is going to be consisted of or the thought that, that we must keep in mind as, as we travel through this uh, dense forest of, of Paul here. So our main idea for today is Jesus' obedience secured a right standing before God on our behalf. And so um, the main idea is going to stay up there if you want to write it down by all means, but I would really love to uh, start us off with prayer before we dive in. So church, please pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for, for today. Thank you for the ability that you have given us to gather here where we know that in some places that is not the case. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world have to huddle in homes and basements and attics because... Preaching and teaching of the Bible is not allowed there, but we thank you, Lord, that in your grace we're able to listen to your word. As, as, we, as, as we dive into your word, I would pray, Lord, that you would disarm e each and every single one of us of our, of our comebacks, of our arguments, of our justifications, and that you would give us the ability to humbly receive your word and produce from it. Because we don't just want to be hearers of your word. We want to produce fruit from it. We want to be doers. And so I pray, Lord, that you bless our time today and that you would reveal yourself to us in the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we're going to start off with our first point, and that is Adam. So let's start off in verse 18 where Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass. This word trespass means a veering from the path. It means a misstep and is used interchangeably in the Bible with the word sin, which means to miss the mark. And so from this one trespass 
it led to condemnation for all men. The word condemnation, the bare root of it, it means a penalty. So from this one trespass, this one misstep, it led as a penalty for all men. And this word all men literally means all men. Mankind, humanity. And so that was Paul's summary, but it gives us more questions than it does answers because now we're, we're wondering, where did this trespass come from? What was this trespass? How did they do it and where did they do it? And so now Paul is going to clarify that in verse 19 and the first part of it. So let's jump down there. And he says, for as by the one man... This one man is referring to, uh, to Adam, and Adam was the first human created by God. And he was put in this beautiful garden so that he could tend to it and work it. And God told him that he could eat from whatever tree he wanted except for one. And even God gave him the warning of, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Soon after that, God created a wife for Adam named Eve, and it wasn't long until something bad happened. A serpent shows up, who's Satan, and tempts Eve to take from the forbidden tree, and and what is the result of that? Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. This is what Genesis says. But the serpent said to the woman... You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What was the result? He disobeyed. For as by one man's disobedience. But but what about Eve? Why does this verse put such an emphasis on this one man if they both sinned? Because it says by this one man, not humans, or by this one woman and one man's disobedience. It just says one man. At the end of the day, Adam was the one who was created first. The commandment to not eat from the tree was given to Adam directly, though it was to be applied to both of them. Adam willingly ate from the tree as opposed to Eve who was deceived. Now, this doesn't mean that Eve was innocent because she wasn't. And it doesn't mean that she was ignorant because she clearly knew because she was aware about not eating from the tree and she disobeyed and she sinned too, but Adam was the one who got put in charge. And we see this in the fact that after they sinned, the first person God approached was Adam, not Eve. He was a representative of his household. And so that's why it says, Adam disobeyed. Anytime an individual goes against or, acts in a, uh, or fails to act in accordance with, with 
the commandment or a commandment that God has put in place, it is called disobedience. But more severely, it is called a sin. It is called a trespass. It is what verse, we refer back to verse 19 is referring to the one trespass. This one trespass of verse 18 refers to it is this disobedience by Adam in verse 19. It is a veering from the path. It is missing the mark. It is missing the step. Now, this isn't a mistake that could be swept under the rug or an ice cube that could be kicked under the fridge. You know what I mean. This is sin against the God of the universe. It is disobeying God. And since he is a just God, he must execute justice. And so in the garden, he does. God declared Adam and Eve guilty. They were guilty sinners in the eyes of God for their disobedience, and God's judgment on them was corruption entering the world as we know it. Because before that, God had made everything good, everything good, including Adam and Eve. But from that point on, when they sinned, not only were they declared guilty, but corruption creeped into human history and defiled their very being, who they were. They now had an inclination to sin. They had an inclination to disobey. And so what does a historical account of Genesis have to do with us today, many, 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 many years later? Well, the reality that scripture teaches us is that not only was Adam a representative of his immediate family, but he also serves as a representative for his extended family, a.k.a. you and me, a.k.a. humanity. So when God declared Adam and Eve guilty, that guilt is credited to our account because we all come from Adam. Though we might have not been there to get tempted by Satan, though we might have not been there to eat from the fruit or from whatever it actually was, God charges us as if we did because Adam sinned. He served as our representative. Verse 19 says, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This word made is actually declared from Adam's disobedience, they, we were declared sinners, and many really refers to the all men in verse 18, where it says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. The word many is not extent, but it's variation, and if you think about the many people that are in the world, that is what Paul is talking about. The different ethnicities, the different races, all men are condemned. All men were declared sinners. And we see this in this same chapter in verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, we all sinned. We are declared guilty sinners. And, and what is the proof of that? The sins we commit. Our inclination to disobey 
our inclination to sin and not to not even think or process what we're doing, but it is an inclination we're willing to sin. And so we see here clearly that the same judgment that Adam and Eve got, we receive. Not only were we declared sinners, but we do that. Our judgment, just like Adam and Eve's is sin. And so we have an inclination to disobey, and we do it all the time. Any chance we get, we will. But the question is why? Why do we disobey? And if there's a pattern that we could see before the earth was created, and even in the garden, is that the one cardinal sin that we can observe and that causes us to disobey is pride. It is pride that God, Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden and condemned. Adam and Eve desired to be God more than they desired to be with God. And it's easy to say, oh, well, I wouldn't have done that. You're proving my point exactly. That is pride. One pastor said this, like Adam and Eve, each time we sin, we're choosing to be our own deity. We're placing ultimate trust in ourselves, not in our creator and savior and Lord. This sin that we commit has been around way before. I mean, we just finished going through the book of Malachi and that literally is a book of sin. If we remember from Malachi, the most prominent positions that were put in place to bring God glory were changed and were exchanged to bring man glory. The worship that the Levites would give to God, the offerings that the priests would give to God were all corrupt. Yet the people of Malachi, they called them good. The Levites called them good. The priests called them good. And yes, we could say they were being lazy. Yes, we could say, well, that's all they had. But at the end of the day, God called it bad. And they called it good because they were placing themselves as the ultimate source of what is good and what is bad and not God. That is pride. Pride ruins relationships. We saw that in the garden, it ruined the relationship with Adam and Eve and God, but even the relationship with themselves. It is the same with us to this day. It is because of our pride that we fail to come to repentance before God because we're self-sufficient. It is because of pride that we fail to forgive one another. It is because of pride that we feel and we show that we're better than what we actually are because so-and-so is watching. That is what pride is. But the most dangerous place of pride is within a family. We saw that in the garden. Husband, how many times do you lash out at your wife because she doesn't do the things that you want her to do the way you want them to be done? Wives, how many times have you tried to usurp the authority of your husband in the marriage? 
Parents, how many times have your children called you out because of sin and your best response is, you don't tell me what to do, I'm the adult and you're the child. All of that is pride. All of that is disobedience. And if we fall in those categories, we need to come before God and repent. We need to humble ourselves before God because pride will ruin every relationship you have. After all, it was pride that kicked Satan out of heaven. And so after diving into so much sin and we see the sin around the world and we see the sin within our households and how we could be, then what is our hope? If our sinful nature is just a consequence from the main problem and that is that we are guilty sinners before the eyes of God, how then do we get into a right standing before God? Clearly, we can't work our way there because we're corrupt and the deeds that we produce are corrupt. So the question is, is it even possible? Is it even possible? So now we turn to our second point, and that is Jesus. And we're going to pick up from the, the middle of verse 18 where Paul says, so. And this word so is actually translated to in the like manner. And this indicates that there's a comparison that's going to be made. In other words, in the like manner that one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness. Now, this one act of righteousness is a, is a righteous deed or a deed that is acting in accordance with God's law. And so when we read to one act of righteousness, what does it lead to? It leads to justification and life for all men. The result of this righteous deed is that it leads to justification, and justification means to, be, to, to declare somebody not guilty. In other words, it is being in right standing before God. And so we see the big difference now in verse 18. The same way that one trespass led to condemnation for all men, one righteous deed leads to right standing before God for all men. But this verse right here, church, is, is proof that we know that a right standing before God is possible. However, it's not possible through our righteous acts because we break God's law all the time. So then... Let's jump down to verse 19, and Paul's going to clarify again the midpoint where he says, so again, he's going to do another comparison. He says, so by the one man's. Paul introduces another man, and this man is Jesus. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Jesus, being truly God, came into this world free from sin. He was free from the guilt that we inherit and the corrupt nature that we inherit. Because you got to realize the judgment that God gave to Adam was for Adam and those who came through him. You and me. However, Jesus did not come from Adam. He was miraculously conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and as a result, he is free from sin. He is free from guilt. He is free from the corruption that me and you possess because he is truly God. But in addition, Jesus is truly man. 
And though he was conceived miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit, he came into this world the same way you and I do through a woman. And he experienced the same things we do. Jesus knows what it means to be hungry. He knows what it means to be angry. He knows what it means to be full of joy. He knows what it means to laugh, to cry, to be depressed, to be anxious. And this proof is, this verse is, is, is proof of that. Because what did he do? Verse 19 tells us, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus obeyed. Just because Jesus was truly God doesn't mean that he got the pass to do whatever he wanted like you and I would do if we were God. But rather, the Bible tells us in Philippians that, that when Jesus came, he humbled himself to the point that he didn't use his God attributes to make life easy for him or to bail him out like we would. He humbled himself, he endured, and he obeyed. And so this word obedience doesn't necessarily refer to one instance of obedience, but rather this word obedience refers to one whole lifetime. A lifetime of obedience. Adam sinned in one fraction of a second, but Christ obeyed for 33 years. From the moment he was born all the way to his death and resurrections, and, and theologians categorize Jesus' obedience into two separate categories, though they're all under the same umbrella. The first is Jesus' active obedience, very scholarly. And this obedience is, is the obedience that Jesus displayed as he, he perfectly and actively obeyed every single commandment, every single law that was placed by God the Father on this earth. Not only was Jesus born perfect, but he stayed perfect. He maintained his perfection. Every single law that we fell, Jesus has fulfilled and kept it perfectly through his whole life. And to even put this in, in, into a bigger perspective, Adam and Eve were, were tempted by Satan in a garden where they had the commodity of every single fruit and they sinned and they disobeyed. Yet Jesus was tempted by Satan in a desert while he was fasting and he obeyed. That's Jesus' active obedience. But there's another category, and that is Jesus' passive obedience. And this is the obedience that Jesus demonstrated giving up his own life. Jesus' life was not taken from him. Jesus wasn't a victim. Jesus is a victor. Jesus gave up his own life willingly. That's why he himself said, I lay my life down for my sheep. In other words, I lay my life down for those who follow me, for those who believe in me, for my followers. And so when we read this word obedience and we go back to verse 18 and we see, so this one act of righteousness, it's not just one act, but it's one act. Jesus' life, his whole life was one act of righteousness. 
And so we'll tackle the same question that we did with, with, with Adam and Eve. What does, what does Jesus' life have to do with me? In the same manner that Adam's and, and Eve's life have to do with me. Well, let's keep reading, says verse 19. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This word righteous means upright. And so now the question is, how is it possible that one man's obedience, all men or many, we see that in verse 18, all men, justification of life for all men, the many will be made righteous. How is it possible when there's none righteous? We read in Romans 3, which same author, 9 to 12 says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All, it doesn't matter where you come from. All are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. How could somebody possibly be declared righteous or called righteous when there's not one, when we carry this guilt? And so it begs the question then, who are these all men from verse 18, and who are these many from verse 19? The all men, verse 18, and the many from verse 19 refer to the same group of people, and those are those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he becomes our new representative. Adam no longer represents us, which means the innocent standing that Jesus had before God the Father that Jesus earned and the perfect life that Jesus lived gets credited over to my life as if I did do those things when I didn't. We are justified. We are declared innocent as he was. Verse 19 says that the many will be made righteous. This word made is the same word that we saw a while ago with Adam. And it's that we, we are declared righteous or upright. Not because we are, because we're not, but because our representative accomplished that on our behalf. Jesus. Our corrupt nature, the reason we sin, is just evidence of the greater problem. And that is that we are viewed by God as guilty. And so we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. But when I put my faith in Jesus, he takes care of that problem. And now I am viewed by God as justified. I am viewed by God as innocent, not because I am, but because Jesus accomplished that for me. Do we still sin? Yes. Do we still disobey? Yes. But the difference is now I am viewed as a friend of God instead of an enemy of God. And now the Holy Spirit is actually working in me, enabling me to resist sin instead of having an inclination to sin. Right before we got to verse 18, Paul said this in verse 17. He says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive 
the abundance grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Church, sometimes we, we, we clearly overlook this and the only thing uh, that we think about of redemption is Jesus' death on the cross. As if that was the only act of grace in Jesus' life. But Christ's work is, is bigger than we know and that we co- can comprehend. Christ's life was just as necessary as his death because if he did not perfectly obey, we wouldn't be able to have this right standing before God. So church, Jesus displays his grace and the fact that he died for you. But at the same time, he also displays his grace in the fact that he lived for you. I know you have problems with this because I do too. Why is it that way? Why are we, we come into this world free of guilt? Hey, we come into this world with guilt. If Adam is not our first representative, Jesus isn't our second representative. If you think Adam is a mythical figure, Jesus is a mythical figure. If you don't like this creditation, well, you won't have Jesus' righteousness. So yes, the burden is there of this guilt, but there is a way out. Now the other issue is, why well, I just can't accept that. I'm too much of a sinner. I don't deserve that. Neither do we. Neither does anybody. That's why it's called grace. Because if it was meant to be worked for, it'd be called work and not grace. Grace is freely given. We read that just right now. Much more with those who receive the abundance of grace, and it is abundance. We don't, we don't understand how the reality of the work of Jesus. It is greater than what we know. Church, this is for you. This is God's grace for you. He lived for you, and he died for you. It is to your account. Jesus obtained and secured, he earned a right standing before God on our behalf. Now, if you wouldn't consider yourself as someone who has given your life to Christ or or a Christian, thank you so much for, for being here with us. I know it's very hard to talk about sin and putting a lot of these things on the table, and thank you so much for being patient, but I really want to read something with you. And that's in in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. This is what it says. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. If you wouldn't consider someone who has given your, your life to Christ, then I must tell you, you can't work yourself into a good standing before God. 
By the works of the law, no one will be justified. So maybe you could try and abstain from sinning for a little bit, behavior modification, but the root of your problem is not that you sin, but it's that you're a sinner. You're declared guilty before God, and good works can't erase that guilt. So even if you abstain from sin, you're still guilty because of your representative. Yet Jesus came into this world and he lived the life that you and I could not live. And he died the death that we deserve. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he credits all of his obedience, all of his perfection to us. And then we are justified by God. Not because we worked our way, but because God sent his begotten son, Jesus, to lift the life that we couldn't. We can't work our way into a, into a good standing before God because it doesn't take care of that problem. So if you wouldn't consider yourself as an individual who has not put their faith in Jesus, I would urge you, put your faith in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins so that Jesus could be your representative and so that you could reconcile with God the Father. That is the purpose of Jesus. That's why Jesus came. To redeem us. Church, the, the reality of this is that Jesus came into this world knowingly, willingly to live for you. And every time he abstained from sin, every time he was tempted, he, and he obeyed, he was thinking of you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the marvelous work of your son Jesus that our finite minds cannot comprehend. Thank you for redeeming us and thinking about us in that exact moment when Adam and Eve sinned. Because even after Adam and Eve sinned, you atoned for their sins and you forgave them. Just as you have forgiven us. Lord, I, I would pray that you would help us really understand the, the, the work of your salvation, of the work of your son, the totality of it, so that we could be in greater awe of what we already are. Help us understand the work of your son 
and help us understand that even when it's difficult, even when we may feel uncomfortable, we thank you for sending your son Jesus on our behalf because there could have not been anything else we could have possibly done to earn a right standing before you. Help us within the work of the Holy Spirit to obey just as Jesus obeyed. Help us have a heart for you and not for ourselves, not a, not a prideful heart that's self-seeking and self-serving, but rather a heart that is humbly enamored by you and for what you have done for us. Help us fall into that love. Bring us near to you so that we won't have to feel like it's a burden to come to you with all your problems when in reality you have paid for all of them. We thank you for the great work of, of the obedience of Jesus. Jesus.